Hello, friends. This is Dave Pasqualone with the Remarkable People Podcast. Season 1, Episode 15, The Jim Porter Story. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. Do. Repeat. For life. Hey, Jim. How are you today? Good. Thank you. Having a great day. Oh, I'm glad to have you here today. Thank you so much for coming by. Thanks for uh, inviting me. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, be part of this. Yeah, and as the listener, just so you know, Jim is a great man. I first was introduced to Jim, I don't think he knows this, about 25 years ago when I was in college, maybe 30 years ago. I think you spoke at the college for a professional assembly, and I remember listening to you speak there. Uh, Do you remember that way back? At Pensacola Christian? Yep, yep, Pensacola Christian. Yes, I do. I used to uh, speak to the seniors. Yep. how about that? Yeah, so I remember that was, was a, a long first time ago. That was the first time I was introduced to you, no, and sure. I was so impressed with your not just intelligence and professionalism, but your godly character. And then we moved away for years, traveled, and then we came back here, and I met your sons and their wives and your grandkids, and you just truly have an amazing family. Well, thank you. They, okay. you know, they say even the Bible it says you don't know how you raise your kids until you see your grandkids. So, congrats, you've done a great job. <laughs> thank you very much. The Lord is blessed. Yeah, and so Jim, I'm going to not, I don't want to take his thunder, but I mean, in a nutshell, uh, Jim was a naval aviator. He built an impressive real estate business that still continues to this day. He's been married for over 51 years to his beautiful bride. They have five children, 13 grandchildren, and they fostered over 70 newborn babies. So that is impressive in itself. And the journey to get there, Jim's going to share with you. But then also he started a tremendous ministry in this area called the Men's Barn Meeting and Trophies of Grace. So throughout the episode, Jim's going to unpack and show you how God led him through this journey and what he had to overcome in his side to get there, how he did it, so you can too. Before we start with the episode, you want to tell him the story how we met Jim? Yes. Um, recently, at a uh, barn meeting, one of our ministry uh, up in the in the woods, um, David uh, came up to there to a meeting. Was that when uh, when Trenton was here? Yes, sir. Yeah, we had. Uh, I have a son in training in the Navy, a grandson, and uh, we had a welcome home party. He had been gone eighteen months, and he's in a very difficult type of training situation. And they had a welcome home party for for Trenton, and uh, David came. And uh, that's when I first met him. Well, he was telling me about, uh, we have alligators up up at the uh, my place. We have an alligator display, and we have several in, in the barn that are mounted. And David uh, was telling me about an incident. Uh, uh, you were on a kayak, was it? or a surf, I was on a paddleboard. 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 In Escambia Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said that... Uh, well, you might want to tell him that. You I'll should... tell this part of the story. So Jim has an alligator farm, and he was contacted by, who is that? What even board would that be? The pest control? I mean, who, who yeah, contacted well, you? Well, if, uh, the uh, Florida uh, Fishing Game. Okay, Fishing Game they, contacted They take calls on nuisance alligators. When they pose a threat to people, um, they actually said, my son is the alligator trapper for the uh, nuisance trapper for the state of Florida for Santa Rosa and Escambia counties. So when there's if someone has a 
an alligator in a swimming pool or in their backyard or something, or, or it poses, it poses a, uh, poses a threat, maybe at a dock where they're fishing or swimming or whatever, they call into the state. The state sends a nuisance trapper out, and that's my son, Scott. So, so Scott a- came into the picture on a Sunday. Let's back this up to a Thursday or Friday. So I don't want to cut you off. I just want to let them know where this is going so we don't give away too much of what happened. So I was working hard and I had Jade. You know, we all have those days. We're like, I just need to blow off some steam. So I did everything I tell my kids not to do. I took the day off and didn't tell anybody. I went out to the beach, didn't bring my cell phone. No one was with me. And I just grabbed my lunch and went out on the paddleboard and kept going. And when I was out there, I went past, we're in the panhandle of Florida, beautiful, gorgeous area. And there's a place called Fort Pickens. And when you paddleboard from the sound side, you can go all the way to Fort Pickens. It's, it's quite the, I think it's about a seven mile journey from end to end, correct? It is. Yeah. So I went about five miles and when I was there... I just was like, oh, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to just eat my lunch I brought. And I had my legs dangling in the water and I'm facing the shore about, oh, maybe 20 yards away. And as I'm enjoying the day, I just hear this like splashing in the water behind me. And I turn around and no more than 30 feet, I just see some like rustling in the water and it disappears. So I'm like, huh. I thought maybe a bird like swooped down, grabbed the fish, and I missed it, right? So I go back, and I'm sitting there. My feet are dangling in the water. And then I hear, oh, again. And I turn quickly, and I just see something black, about six to eight feet long. And I thought, whoa, is that like a, like a stingray? I never, never once considered anything else. So I thought, that was weird, right? So I felt really uncomfortable. And I'm thinking, dude, you're such a sissy. What are you doing? So... At this point, I just something inside me is like, you need to get up and go. So I get up and I stand up on my paddleboard. And I know this is hard to believe, but I, I wasn't panicky. I just started paddling, but a current came, Jim. And it was, I actually thought, wow, I've never moved this fast on my paddleboard. Like, this is awesome. It was just taking <laughs> me like I was being towed on a jet ski, just right down the shoreline. And I thought, this is awesome. I wonder if there was really like something to worry about. Not nah, Then I blew it out of my mind. Didn't think about it again. I get to the shore. I load up my paddleboard. One of my buddies calls me, makes a joke. Do you see any sharks? I'm like, I didn't see any sharks, but I think I saw a really cool stingray eating a fish. I don't even know if stingrays eat fish, right? I'm from the city. <laughs> so he's, we're joking about that. Don't think about it. Saturday comes. My buddy is another buddy. He's at the soccer game with me. We're watching our kids. And I'm telling him about how he asked me what I did. I said, I went paddleboard. And I told him about this weird six to eight foot black thing I saw. I think it was a giant stingray. It's like, I don't think that's a stingray. And then we both just moved on. Two days later, he sends me a photo of your son, four <laughs> other people, and an and a alligator. And he's like, good thing this doesn't like Italian food because you should be dead right now. And that's where you pick up. <laughs> Yeah, so when when you're telling me this story, we're standing in the edge of the barn where we're having this party, and, and that alligator is mounted and on the <laughs> wall. And, uh, Scott had him made into a rug. And um, I said, you're not going to believe this, David. I said, 
I'm sure that's the alligator that my son Scott got a call on. And he, when he gets a call, it's called an e-call sometimes because that means it's an emergency. Mm-hmm. Get out there quickly and get it. Like, you know, he got one one time. There was an alligator in a retention pond at um, North Northview High School right before a football game. Oh, wow. And they wanted it out of there before the game. So they sent him an e-message. Or one time a guy had a huge gator in his uh, about a foot from his garage door in Perdido. And um, they called Scott, go get it now. He has to drop what he's doing and go right then. Well, he got an e-call on your on that gator. Yeah. <laughs> it turned out that wasn't a, a stingray eating a fish. That was a that was a, a huge alligator. Yeah, and I saw it was in the newspaper. He sent like I found an article that said it was like chasing people and like it was yeah. really upset. Like it was I guess it yeah, was well, like it was, starving. It, well, it was in salt water, which you don't normally have a freshwater uh, alligator in salt water. They do occasionally, and usually it's brackish. But if they get in pure salt water, apparently they can get cataracts in their eyes uh, mm. over a long period of time. And this gator had been seen a lot. Uh, over a long period of time, so he'd been in salt water a long time, and they, he basically was blind, and he was starving. So whenever he heard a splash, he would go for it. Well, that's why he got a knee call on that one, and uh, and that's why. So the splash crazy how God paddleboard was not a good thing to do. <laughs> God, I mean, honestly, if looking back, God protected me. That thing was maybe. At the most, 30 feet away. That's why that even... current came along. <coughs> yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> you must be living right. <laughs> yeah, and didn't you say also when they went to Spirit, it actually bent the steel? It was so no. mad. Uh, well, Scott, when he got when he got the call, he went out. It was now in very shallow water. It was up in about three feet of water. And he thought it was right before dark, and he thought it was a log. He he was looking for it because he knew <laughs> he had a gator a call or a call of something and. People have been been calling about this gator being real close and, and chasing their dogs, chasing people when they get in the water, and so he was looking for it, and uh, he was by he he had uh, he had a guy with him, Chad Cherry, who helps him occasionally, and uh, but it was too big for the two of them to get in, into into his truck, but in any case, he went um, wading out to see look at that log he didn't realize it was a gator oh, man. and um he he it was right at dark and it was long and black much like what you saw and he waited out and he realized that's the gator i got to call on so he was already out in the water uh up to his knees and that's crazy he, he made a really foolish decision he decided to um to try to sneak up on it from behind well you don't sneak up on an alligator in the water that's like suicide but he did manage to get right up to it and uh, was able to uh, to hit it um, with a harpoon. And when he and this harpoon is about two and a half inches in diameter, it's like a pole. It's not metal; it's wood, but it, it has a harpoon head on it. Well, he he hit it on a good shot with a harpoon, and it has a long rope with a buoy on it, so he can follow that and get mm-hmm. it. And I said, what happened when you did that, Scott? He said, Dad, it was like an explosion took place. He said, it happened so fast. He said, that big lunking gator, he spun around in one swoop, and he bit my uh, my spear all the way up the harpoon. I He has it at home. It's all chewed up like a dog chewed on a stick. 
You Man. know, teeth marks all the way up. I said, "What were you doing?" He said, "Walking on water." He was getting out. Of <laughs> he was running. <laughs> yeah. So on, for me, and but that's your the son, gator story. Yeah, and we'll we'll put. A, I took a picture with it dead. Yeah, I took yeah, a picture we, with it on the, We had you stand by it and took your picture. Yeah. So I'll put that in the. Sh- I'll, I don't think I can put it in the show notes, but I'll put a link to my website. So if you want to see what we're talking about, you can check it out. But uh, that was that actually shows, eleven feet. That was big. Eleven feet. Yeah. yeah. So that shows you how stupid I am and how good God is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get back to the real story while you're listening today. We love you listeners. Thanks for uh, entertaining me, right? But uh, so let's do this, Jim. Wherever you want to start from your past, let's bring us up to today and okay. however you see uh-huh. fit, whatever you feel led to share. Well, I was born in uh, Trenton, New Jersey, Hamilton Square, actually, a little town in, near Trenton. And uh, <clears throat> I was born in a family that was not a Christian family as far as... Um, my mom and dad did not raise us uh, children as Christians. Um, they did not go to church, but they sent us kids. I have an older brother and a younger sister. So we had, uh, we were very, very faithful in attending a little church in our town. And uh, we did that for many years. Do you want me to ask, was it a bus ministry back then? No, actually we walked up there. It was, a, oh, okay. it was, it was about two miles from our house. So back then, this was in... This, <laughs> this is in uh, 1950s, right. <laughs> 43 actually, right. uh, when I was born. But um, we did this as young kids, um, you know, all through our, our elementary school. And um, mom and dad taught us good Christian values. Uh, they taught us to respect authority. They taught us to respect our country, uh, to be obedient, uh, to uh, honor and respect police and first responders and and that was just part of it back then, and uh, never talk back. Uh, it, was, it was something we didn't do in mm-hmm. our house. And so that was really good basic training and all. And then uh, we grew up uh, hunting and fishing. We lived on a dead-end street at the end of the, uh, the last house on the street, surrounded by woods and uh, fields and a pond and a creek. So we used to uh, hunt and fish and trap also muskrats that we, we spent all our time in fact all the neighbors all our friends in school called it porter's woods but we didn't, <laughs> we didn't own it we just had a little house down there and before you go on too i give new jersey a hard time because i grew up in boston outside yeah, of boston and yeah. milford okay. mads but um new jersey has some beautiful areas they I mean, do they like you grew up in an obviously more of a beautiful yeah. area not the inner city correct well we were about six miles out of trenton trenton's a pretty big city and mm-hmm. uh, and the capital of course but uh, yes jersey has uh, it's known as the garden state that's the nickname like mm-hmm. far as the, the sunshine state new jersey is the garden state and uh, tremendous uh, vegetable gardens they're known for corn and uh, tomatoes and peaches and uh, south jersey now is is um more pine barren, pine forest, and uh, they're known for asparagus, uh, big time, and tomatoes down there. And but uh, so it is. There are really some pretty areas, and uh, back then it wasn't as populated as it is now. Now the main purpose of New Jersey is it connects New York to Philly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just want to show them some love because I'm not gonna lie. I give New Jersey my friends from Jersey. I give such a hard time yeah. too. So for once, I want to show them some love. There's some beautiful areas. But go uh, on. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed it. We had, we had a great, great, fam- very close family, very family oriented, and uh, uh, we went camping together as a family. Uh, us kids were in 4-H. I was in Boy Scouts and uh, played a little midget league football, and I played football in, in uh, high school and also a couple two years in college, and uh, played a little league baseball. I wasn't very good at it, but I <laughs> I enjoyed it, and so. Uh, that's basically uh, my early growing up until I was uh, nine years old. When I was nine years old, 
One day, my dad came home from uh, work. You know, at that point, he worked at uh, a steel mill in Pennsylvania. He commuted over there each day across the Delaware River. And uh, he, Dad had been kind of restless. Uh, we could tell that. Uh, I was nine years old at the time. Dad would have been 33, I think, 34. And he came home one day, and he said, Hey, kids, uh, gather around. Well, in our house, it was like clockwork. At 520... His little red Henry J. Kaiser would, 1951, <laughs> would pull in the driveway, and Mom would have supper ready. And it was just like, we did that five days a week. Well, this day, Dad come home. He said, hey, gather around before supper. He said, I got to tell you something exciting that happened to me at work today. He said, um, at work today, during break time, I was reading my Bible. I didn't even know my dad had a Bible. He said, I was reading my Bible, and I got into um, an area of the Bible that explained the plan of salvation. And he said, by myself, I prayed and asked the Lord to come into my heart, forgive me of my sins, and uh, make me his child, adopt me into his family. Wow. And he said, if I'd have been killed in a car wreck or something on the way to work this morning, I would have gone to hell to pay for my sins. He said, but uh, I'm saved now. And of course, that was the news to us. We were all sitting around kind of in shock, you know. And it turned out that uh, we later found out my dad's cousin had witnessed to him about Christ actually um, 14 years earlier. And my dad told him, nah, Paul, I'm not interested in that. I, I just, you know, don't, don't, don't mm-hmm. tell me about that. And But Paul started praying for my dad, and he prayed for him for 14 years. And, 14 and that years. came to fruition, and dad got saved. So, so he planted the seed, he mm-hmm. watered it, and he didn't quit. He yeah. just stayed And, firm. you know, and what's interesting is, it taught me as I look back at it that if you have accepted Christ and you're saved, you know enough, even as a brand new Christian, to lead someone else toward. You don't yeah. need Bible school. You don't need you know, these things are good and all, but it's not necessary. You just share what the Lord has done in your life, and that's what my dad did. And I accepted Christ that day. A couple of weeks later, my family, the rest of my family, did, and uh, so that began my my life as a Christian. When in in high school. My dad uh, passed away uh, when I was 17. In fact, on my senior trip, the day I got back from my senior trip, we went to Washington, D.C. with our senior class. And dad had just had surgery and he was doing great and all. And then he took a turn for the worse and uh, passed away that day. And uh, so uh, from that point on, um, I... You know, I, I went to college. I promised my mom that I would go to f- finish college before I did anything. My brother was in the Navy at the time, and my sister was a couple years younger, still in high school. And uh, so uh, I, was, I went to Trenton State College. I was going to become a high school shop teacher. That was my goal. And uh, <laughs> so I was uh, a couple years later now, I'm, I'm a junior in college. Oh, let me backtrack. After I got saved, we found a church that preached the gospel, my dad and I and our family. We went there. In fact, I went to that church from the time I was nine years old until I went in the Navy at age 21. And was that the same or a different church than one you'd walk to? It was a different one. Different. Oh, that's interesting. We went to, um, to talk to the pastor of that church. My dad said, I want to go talk to the pastor and get baptized. And the uh, pastor um, said, well, Bill, why do you want to get baptized? He said, you don't even come to church here. And Dad said, well, I wasn't a Christian, but now that I've accepted Christ and I'm on my way to heaven. And I remember the pastor saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. He said, you got to wait until you die and God weighs your good against the bad to see whether you made heaven. This is a Baptist minister. 
Yeah, that's not and biblical. And that wasn't a good sign. So on the way home, we didn't <laughs> let him baptize us. But on the way home from, from church, my dad uh, and I talked about that. And dad said, I don't know. I'm not sure he's even saved. Mm-hmm. You know, because you wouldn't say that to someone who, who told you, I just accepted Christ. Because uh, that's, you know, the judgment is for those who haven't accepted Christ, that judgment. You mm-hmm. know? And uh, but anyway, so he, dad said, let's find a church where they where they preach the Bible. And so we did. And we went there until until uh, uh, my dad passed away. And then until I went in the Navy, actually, right out of college. And let's pause real quick. Sure. I don't want to keep cutting you off, but we have listeners from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And we have people who have different worldviews. So when... Jim and I are talking about saved. What that means in a nutshell is we believe when you die, you either go immediately to heaven or you go to eternity with God or eternity in hell and punishment. And when you trust Christ, there's nothing we have to do. There's no works we can do. It's just God loving us. He sent Jesus to die for us. And the Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So when you trust God and just say, God, I I love you and you've died for me. You literally sent your son to die for me. There's nothing I can do. It's impossible for me to get to heaven, but you will take me there because you love me by me just asking you. Thank you. I mean, literally, that's what Jim's talking about, that kind of relationship. And the workspace, yeah, we have to do good things, but that there's no amount of good things that can get us to eternity with Christ. Right. It's a gift of God. It's not something... I had a friend that told me, uh, he said, well, the God I worship would never send anybody to hell. And that's I said, true. He wouldn't. And it is true. It's a choice. It's like if I have a gift and, and I give that to you and you don't want it or you don't accept that gift, that's not my fault. Mm-hmm. And so God doesn't send anybody to hell. The, Satan is, is the uh, enemy and to be rescued from that. So you don't have to pay for the wrongdoings. I think all of us would admit that we've made mistakes, that we've we've sinned. Um, if I ask you if you ever stolen anything, you know, no matter how small, it isn't the amount. It's did you take something that somebody? My dad told us, if you, if I ever catch you stealing something, this is how he felt about stealing. If you ever, I ever catch you stealing something from somebody, he said I would rather. And I was only little when he said this. Before he was a Christian, he said I would rather take your arm and break it over my leg and cripple your hand so you can't take something that somebody else worked for. And that's a. That made a real vivid impression on me as a little kid. Yeah, <laughs> and and it's true. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, if you take something, you've broken God's law. You yep. know, you have taken from somebody else that you shouldn't have, and uh, there's a penalty for that. God cannot accept accept sin, and but he he sent his own son to pay that price. You can't buy heaven. You can't buy eternity. You can't join enough churches. You can't give enough money. You can't help enough little old ladies across the street to earn heaven. It is a free gift, and, and it's rich, poor, doesn't matter, black, white, uh, what language you speak, nothing matters uh, along those lines as far as earning eternal life. Yeah, so it's kind of like when we borrow money, I can borrow money, and then I get in some bad shape financially, and I borrow more money, and I just keep borrowing money from all these people, and I can't ever pay it. By the time I look back, I'm $50 million in the hole. And God just comes by and says, hey, I love you so much. Here you go. Here's a check. You just have to accept it. And that's mm-hmm. Jesus. So, but go on. I didn't mean to interrupt okay, your story. I just fine. want to make sure people are clear that yeah. if you try to work yourself to heaven, you're never going to get there. Well, uh, that's true, and 100%. Uh, after I became a Christian, when I was in high school, I used to go to a Christian camp in the Pocono Mountains. Uh, and it was a wonderful week with uh, speakers and, and uh, other Christian kids. And it was just a great, 
experience. And one day, at, uh, the last day of camp, we had a campfire. And uh, they, they uh, had a message and they said, if you'd like to uh, come forward, and by coming forward, indicate that you would like to have whatever God's will for your life is, you want to follow that. You're willing to follow that. It doesn't mean you're agreeing to become a preacher or a missionary or anything. It just means that if God, what you show me to do as I grow, uh, I'm willing to do, no matter what it is. And I went forward. And um, that was a significant uh, turning point for me. And then... uh, as I said, when I was in college, I was going to become a high school shop teacher. I was a junior in college, and nobody in my family except my cousin had ever gone to college. So I promised mom I wouldn't do anything uh, uh, job-wise or anything like that. I would make uh, graduating from college a priority. So I was a junior and uh, going, to, going to graduate the following year and become a high school shop teacher. My buddy came up to me, and he said, hey, Jim, uh, the Navy recruiters are on campus. Let's go talk to them. And I said, are you out of your mind? I said, there's a war going on. It was Vietnam was going on full war in the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. And I said, Bill, I'm going to be a, uh, I'm gonna be a high school shop teacher next year, not fighting for my life. And he said, no, man, we can be pilots and bomb the Viet Cong. And I said, wow, that sounds like fun. <laughs> now, that's not smart. That, that's, that's a full thing to say. And that was before the Top Gun movie to recruit yeah, yeah, you. Yeah, way before Top Gun. But you know what? I had never been in an airplane. I had never met a pilot. I didn't know what an aileron or a rudder was. I had no knowledge of aviation. <laughs> and um, I said, man, that sounds kind of cool, Bill. I said, "Let's. I'll go down with you. So we went down to the gymnasium in college. And uh, there was the, the Navy and the Air Force and the Marine uh, all had a booth set up there. And I went to the Navy, because my brother was in the Navy, and my two uncles had been in the Korean War in the Navy. And so I, I went to the Navy first, and I said, uh, I'm here to uh, check on becoming a Navy pilot. So they gave me a three-hour exam. and I had Right there on the spot. Right there. I had no clue. Um, Bill passed it, my buddy, and I passed it. Um, and I often tell people when I'm speaking if, to young people, if you have a multiple choice test and you have no clue what the answer is, just choose C. That's what I did. And uh, I got enough right on that. So the guy, <laughs> when in doubt, see it out. <laughs> yeah. And so the guy, uh, the, the person administering the test said, well, congratulations, you passed it. Um, he said, um, we're going to send you down to Lakehurst, New Jersey, and you can get a, we'll give you a physical We'll give you a ride in an airplane. I said, man, this is sounding really neat, you know. So, <laughs> so the next week I go down to Lakehurst, New Jersey, and uh, Bill and I did, and we passed the physicals, and um, they put us in an airplane and flew us out over Atlantic City and Steel Pier and all. It was really neat. I had never experienced anything so much fun. That that was absolutely neat, and um, so that's how. Uh, then they said when I landed, he said, okay. Raise your hand, we'll swear you in, and we'll send you to Pensacola, Florida for flight school, which I had never heard of Pensacola, Florida. Mm-hmm. I had no clue. And uh, I said, whoa, wait a minute, I can't do that. And he said, what do you mean? I mean, isn't that why you're here? And I said, yes, sir, but um, I promised my mom I'd graduate from college, and I'm only a junior. He said, okay, uh, we got a pro- program for that. I found out since then that recruiters can <laughs> instantly invent a program yeah, to yeah. meet the need. The war was going on. They needed back pilots. then. They, they had a lot pilots. of they had a lot of wiggle room. Let's <laughs> they say they did. Yeah. 
He said, uh, I'll swear you into the Navy right now. And then he said, you go back to school, finish college, and when you graduate, we'll send you to Pensacola next summer. Not, not this summer, but next summer. And I said, okay, I can do that. So I did. I called my mom and said, hey, mom, I just joined the Navy. She said, you did what? And I said, yeah, I'm going to be a pilot. And she said, you promised you'd finish college. I said, don't worry. I'm in the reserves. I don't have to go to any duty, no weekend training or anything, nothing. I'm just in the inactive reserves until I go on active duty after I graduate from college. And so that's what I did. And, uh, and interesting, my buddy Bill and I went all through flight school together. We were in advanced training in Texas. And he so he did the same thing. He finished yeah. too? Yeah, he finished too. So you guys both yeah. got on the same plan. We did. Five of us from my high school, uh, college graduating class came into the Navy. I'm the only one still living, by the wow. way. <laughs> wow. Um, but Bill, uh, Bill flunked out of flight school. And so mm. that was sad. He's guy talked me into it, and then he, he didn't. And I did. I joined because I wanted to fly fighter jets, and that wasn't God's will. I, I had good grades and, and was doing well, but the Lord saw fit to uh, to let me be selected for multi-engine. So I went to uh, instead of going to Meridian to learn to fly jets. After I landed on the carrier, made my carrier carrier quals, I went to Texas for advanced training and learned to fly patrol planes. Okay. And so, so I wound up flying patrol planes. Um, and I never did get to uh, my fulfillment of being a jet pilot, and, yeah. uh, but I did enjoy it. And probably the biggest thrill I ever experienced of, of a thrill doing something was landing on the aircraft carrier. It was a really a lot of fun. I had another guest who was a pilot, and he would describe what it's like to fly in the dark and to land on an aircraft carrier. No, I never did it at night. <laughs> but you did it during the day. I'm, yeah. What was that like? I mean, oh. just the intensity. It, it is. Well, that's funny because it, it's the... Uh, yeah, Captain Kevin Miller. Do you know him? Who is it? Captain Kevin Miller. No, I don't know Captain. He He's the guest we had. And he's a right? great guy. Yeah. And he was telling the stories of what it was well, like. Well, they say that's the most scary thing you could ever experience is landing on a carrier at night. He said he could and, smell the fear on him. Yeah, yeah. It's it, Those guys say that no matter how many times you've done it, it's always a sheer panic. I mean, you're, you're petrified until you, till you make the stop on the, on the wire. Um, well, I had never seen an aircraft carrier from the air. I didn't know how small they looked from the air. Yeah, and you're landing on it. And I was landing on it. And, and it's, it's the only thing that I did in the Navy that they didn't have an instructor in the airplane the first time you did it. You're solo on the first time you make a carrier landing. They probably don't want to be there with you. The reason <laughs> Why lose two soldiers? Let's just lose one. So, so they... Um, so when when you land on a carrier, um, you uh, you fly out, and the instructor is in another airplane, and he said he reports uh, feet wet when you go over the beach, and then he reports uh, see you when when you have the visual on the carrier. And um, we were in the Gulf of Mexico, and it was a flight of uh, I think four of us or six of us, something like that. And uh, so then. Uh, when you get down in the pattern, you know, you're only 400 feet off the water uh, when you come around to make the landing. And um, you, you, you fly down a glide slope. When you intercept that, it's a beam of light coming up. And you see that beam of light, you call meatball. And, um, and then you, you follow that light down to the ship. And it's weird because the angled deck on a carrier is slightly off center. And the ship is moving forward, which means your runway is moving off to your right. And it's a really difficult uh, transition to make because you line up on the runway, which is very, very, very short. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it looks from the air like it's way too short. It's plenty wide, but way too short. Isn't it only a couple yeah. football fields? 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, that's not a lot of. I don't of know dis- exactly how long. You know, the but it's it's uh, it's long, but there's no forgiveness. No, well, you yeah, if you miss the wires, you got to go around. You know, that's why uh, in the the planes, you can tell the first time a guy lands on it because when he lands on it, you in the, in, the, in a prop plane like I did, you pull the power off in a jet, you push it full forward mm. because they have to wind up the turbine to get their their thrust. Whereas in a, in a prop, it's like stepping on the gas in a car. You have instant, instant uh, forward motion. and uh, But it's a thrill. But when you land the first time and that wire catches you, it, from the time you roll wings level behind the carrier in this type of aircraft, by the time you're stopped, it's nine seconds. So any adjustments you're going to make, you have to do very quickly. You have to be within like two two feet of altitude or... or and uh, nine feet of center line, something like that. And, and you went from never being in a plane to landing on an aircraft carrier yeah. in a couple of years. And it was fun. And <laughs> you made awesome. you made uh, made eight landings there, and then I made eight landings in a multi-engine airplane in a in a, in a uh, uh, S two tracker, which is the old uh, submarine warfare plane. It's kind of the wings fold up on the carrier, mm-hmm. you know, the twin engine. I made eight landings on that too. A lot of fun, but I never became a jet jockey. Uh, but it wasn't the words well. He, uh, I married Janice. I met her in, when I was in flight school. I met her in church. She was playing the piano, and I went to visit. And um, and we just sort of never dated. We just started gradually liking each other without ever dating. And um, uh, months later, we started to date. And, and so I'm glad I stayed around <laughs> Pensacola longer and uh, was able to date Janice. And, and we married. And uh, in fact, we married just after I made my carrier landings, uh, and, and then we went to Texas for advanced training. I think at the end of that, she could have flown the airplane as well as I could because she knew all the checklists <laughs> because we used to practice the checklist together, study together, and emergency procedures, and all. She helped me. She she should they should have put the wings on her instead of me. I know she could have flown. Um, but That's it was awesome. interesting. So the word was good, and uh, and I never did you know drop bombs on the Viet Cong or anything like that. I never hurt anybody. But um, I scared a lot of people. <laughs> but the word was good. And uh, so I did my, my tours in the Navy. And uh, uh, I was flying patrol planes in Sicily. And I was stationed in Puerto Rico. And I flew all over the Caribbean, all over the Bermuda Triangle, did patrols there, many, many hours there. And then um, the squadron shut down. They were getting rid of the old patrol planes. And they were all shifting to new ones. So they didn't want to train any more pilots in the old kind of airplane like I had learned to fly, the P2V Neptune, which has two propellers and two jets. It's got four engines, two are props and two are jets. They were doing away with that and they were going to the P3 Orion, which had all four turboprops, much, much nicer airplane and a little bit bigger. And so they would take us, they shut the squadron down, VP-18 in Puerto Rico, and they put me in a squadron that still had the old planes. There were mm. only three left in the whole Navy flying the old planes. So I wound up uh, flying in uh, VP-7 in Jacksonville, Florida, and um, we, we went to Sigonella, Sicily, and I flew deployment in Sicily, and then came back from there. We got orders to Vietnam. Then they changed the orders. They were not sending any of the old planes to Vietnam, so they shut that squadron down. So they then put me in VP-23 in Brunswick, Maine. So I did patrols in the North Atlantic, and then back to Sicily again. So I did two tours in Sicily. Do you like it out there? 
Pardon? Do you like it in Sicily? I liked it. Oh, yeah. In fact, is when I, when I got came back the second time, uh, I requested to stay there and become a station pilot, but they didn't mm. need a station pilot at that point, and uh, and so um, so that's when uh, I became a flight instructor at Whiting Field and here in Pensacola, which was ideal because I got you know I did two years as a flight instructor here, and that was before I. Ended up getting in real estate. Yeah, and then your and your wife's from here, so that was yeah, it was home for her, so uh, it was great. And her wonderful Christian family that she was, uh, they they adopted me like a son. My uncle still called me a Yankee, but I said, "When will you stop calling that?" He said, "Well, never, but you're a good Yankee." So that was kind of neat. So then, now you're in the military. You come to Pensacola. Uh-huh. You do your two years, and then do you leave the military, or you stay in reserves? What goes yeah. on there? Well. Uh, I did a little, a couple months in reserves, but uh, uh, actually did a few months in reserves and then went back on active duty and did two years as a, as a flight instructor. I taught close formation and uh, then I taught night flying also uh, for the squadron. And um, uh, So now how do you go from being a shop teacher to being a pilot and now you get in real estate? How did that happen? Well, I was getting ready to get out of the Navy. And uh, we, we felt it was the Lord's will that I get out of the Navy because my next tour, I would have been like an, uh, maybe a fuels officer on an aircraft carrier or something. Mm-hmm. It would have been not a flying billet. You know, the, it would be a sea duty tour. And I didn't want to go on a sea duty tour away from my wife and, and uh, had two kids at the time. And so I really didn't want to do that. Um, and I said, you know, maybe the Lord's leading us to, to do something in civilian life. So we were praying about what to do. And uh, Janice and I were um, were uh, personal workers for uh, Jerry Falwell. He was having a, a meeting in Pensacola High School, and uh, it was a, 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 a meeting that he had down there. And we would help when people came forward to uh, consult with them and pray with them and all. Well, after that meeting, I was still in the Navy. I said uh, I waited and talked to him. I said, uh, Doctor Falwell. I'm a Christian. I've been in the Navy. I'm getting out in the several months, and I'm seeking the Lord's will for my life. I said, do you have any advice for a young man getting out of the Navy seeking the Lord's will? And he said, he looked at me and he said, young man, he said, this world is full of people sitting around waiting for God to show them what his will is for their life. He said, it's more important to be in his will than to know what his ultimate will is for you. Mm. And he said, and that kind of was something new that I hadn't heard that concept before. He said, don't worry about long range. He said, he's not going to send you a bullet or a letter or wake you up in the night and say, you need to do this. He said, he gave me an illustration. He said, uh, you remember when the children of Israel, after wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, finally they're getting to the promised land. And he said one obstacle they had to cross was the river, the Jordan. And it was a time of year they went was flood stage. It wasn't like the Red Sea where he parted the waters and they walked across dry shod. He said when he wanted the people to get into where his will was, they had to step into that water. And that took a lot of courage to step into that water when it wasn't open like it did with the Red Sea with Moses. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, so what you need to do is take a step forward. Be honest with God and say, Lord, I want to do what your will is. He may lead you somewhere that you need to get some training. You need some experience and something else to lead you to something other that he ultimately has for you. He said, it's not important that you know what he ultimately wants you to do. 
But what you need to do is have the faith, if you're honest with him, and say, Lord, I'm asking you to show me. I'm going to go this direction. He said he will open and close doors for you. So he said, uh, do you have any interest in? I said, well, I've, I've written 57 different airlines. And we had, and we didn't have computers then. You had to hand type legal size six page applications to become a pilot with the airlines. Mm-hmm. And I, and I had multi engine training. I had thousands of hours of flying experience, uh, in heavy airplanes. And I would have, and I also had a commercial license and an instrument rating, uh, and a multi engine rating at that time. And so, you know, it would have been a natural. Unfortunately, 10,000 pilots were getting out because Vietnam was winding down. Oh, yes. And you, you had to be an Air Force cargo plane driver to get a job. I couldn't get a job as a baggage handler wow. uh, with my experience. And so that door closed, um, in, uh, and we did not get a, uh, even an interview for, for a job with the airlines. And so... Uh, that closed. I thought of missionary aviation, perhaps, uh, and I wrote a couple of Christian colleges. Uh, Letourneau was one. They had a mission program and all, and I didn't feel that was the way to go. Some of my friends told me, uh, you know, you like to meet people. You probably would do well in real estate. And so Dr. Fowler said, well, do you have an interest in that? And I said, yeah, kind of. Mm-hmm. He said, well, then why don't you just tell the Lord? He, he's your father. He He won't send you on a wild goose chase. If your son came to you and asked you, Dad, what what should I do in this situation? He's not going to give you a bum direction to go just to get you hurt or anything. He may send you somewhere for you to learn a lesson, to work your way into something else. But but he wants to know that you are willing to follow him. So be honest with him. And if uh, if you are willing, tell him, I'm going to go and start toward real estate. And will you please either open or close that door? Mm-hmm. And he will. And so... Uh, I called the junior college, and uh, the, back then there were no private real estate schools, and you couldn't do it online back then. You had to go directly uh, to the uh, a state uh, college in mm-hmm. Florida you did. And so Pensacola Junior College was the only place in our area that offered a real estate course. So I went to PJC, and I said, I'd, I'd like to sign up for your real estate course. And they said, um, okay, uh, uh we, we only have classes uh, two nights a week from 6 to 10 on Tuesday and Thursday nights. And I said, no, no, I can't do that. I said, I'm a Navy pilot, and I'm a night flight instructor. And I, <laughs> I, I fly five nights a week, and uh, I, no way I can get off Tuesday and Thursday nights. I said, I need a day class or maybe a, whole, a week straight. Do you have anything? She said, no, the only way you can get a real estate license in our area is to come to the junior college two nights a week. And I'm thinking, the Lord's closing this door. Mm-hmm. So I signed up for it, paid my tuition. Then I went to my boss, and I said, I need off every Tuesday and Thursday night for the next uh, six weeks. And he said, are you out of your mind, Porter? He said, we're so far behind on pilot production right now. And at that time, there were only six of us that were qualified as night instructors in that squadron. So virtually every flight student coming through, uh, when they reach that stage in their flight training that it's all night flying, one of we us six we had to do it all. Now, when you say night flying, they're from land back to land. Because you said you never did the aircraft carrier, correct? Yeah, night? right. Yeah. So we, the we, night flying you're doing, yeah, is I was an instructor at Whiting Field here in uh, in Milton. Gotcha. And and we would take off and then we would fly uh, low level navigation and that kind of thing we were teaching, and. Uh, and we would uh, land back at home base. Gotcha. Okay, I just want to make sure yeah. I was clear on yeah. that. Okay. And so, 
my boss said, uh, said, Porter, there's no way I can let you off. He said, man, there's only six of us. We're doing all the flying for, you know, all the hundreds of students. He said, we're booked every night and we're behind now. Now we're even flying Saturdays and some Sunday nights. He said, I, he said, I just can't. He's, I said, well, I already paid my tuition. He said, well, you just wasted your money. So I went home and I said, honey, I think God's closing the door. <laughs> you won't believe it. The very next week, we had a crash in the squadron, and a couple of people got killed. And um, uh, they shut down all flying for a week to have safety sta- uh, le- lectures. Mm. And so I went to Tuesday and Thursday night. The following week, uh, a storm front moved in off the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, they shut down flying. It And uh, it, it was one thing after another. Like uh, one week, I got a, a near block um and the flight surgeon grounded me. And, um, and, you know, and so I made all my classes, which is miraculous, literally miraculous. Yeah, you don't and tell the military what to do. They tell you. And you. I even asked them if I could take leave. I said, well, how about if I take leave and I just take it like two days a week, you know? He said, no, if you request leave, I'll turn it down. And uh, that my boss told me. I mean, so... It was a, a God thing. No so question. twelve days, six weeks. God worked out every you one. Were, of them. You were allowed to miss two classes and still take the final exam, and I and I did miss two, but I but I made all the other classes. That's all. And then came time for the final exam, and I was scheduled to fly uh, that night. It was a Thursday night. I'll still remember it. And and Whiting was about a forty-five minute ride, maybe thirty minutes if you speeded all the way from Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. To Whiting, <clears throat> and I was scheduled to fly that night in a four-plane uh, uh, night right after dark takeoff, and um, with a student in the airplane, <laughs> uh, dual dual flights, and I went to uh, my boss and I said, "I got to have off." I, I I tried to see if they would give me the exam at a different time, early or something, and the 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 instructor at the college said, "Jim." I would love to, but he said, you must take the exam with the, with the class or you have to re- repeat the whole thing. You can't just take it later as a makeup. And uh, I said, I can't believe it. I said, well, can you come in early maybe? Let me take it early. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll come in 15 minutes early instead of six. If you're there at quarter to six, you can start taking it. It's a three-hour exam. Mm-hmm. And uh, So 15 I, minutes, I said, big whoop. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I, I said, okay, I'll, uh, I'll do that. So... I, I got my student ahead of time, and I said, you pre-flight the airplane, and you go to the briefing, and you tell the other instructors and, and students that uh, there were there were four instructors, three instructors and, and three and four students, and then me. I said, you tell them I'll be late, uh, but I'll be there, you know, for takeoff, and so I'll miss the briefing. So my student pre-flighted the airplane, and I said, he got in the airplane, he had the engine running, and I was in Pensacola taking the the exam. I and my instructor wasn't early. He was fifteen minutes late. I was oh. a nervous wreck. I thought this can't be happening. It can't be. <clears throat> I ripped through the exam in about a half hour. It was a it was a two hour exam, I think. I I got it in about a half hour. I ripped through it. Didn't check anything. Go back and look at. I just if I didn't know it, I guessed. And uh, somehow I passed it. And um, I got there, and the other guys were stewing. They're sitting on the flight line with the engines running, and and I'm not there. And I ran out to the flight line, hopped in the airplane, we took off. And, and that's how I got in real estate, but it was the Lord. Now, we, we made a deal with the Lord. We promised the Lord that I would not miss church on Sunday or Wednesday night to show property. 
And um, and if and a lot of people, and especially Pensacola, we have a lot of military. They'll fly in on a weekend to look for a house, and you know when they have orders to come to Pensacola, <clears throat> and um, so uh, I would just find somebody in, in my company that did not uh, uh, go to church, and I'd let them work with them. And I would tell the people, I said, you know, I worked with you all day Saturday, but Sunday morning. You know, I have a commitment with my family, mm-hmm. and uh, if you'd like to go to church with me, you're welcome to, but if you need to look for real estate, I understand that. And I would turn them over to someone, and I don't think I ever lost a dime for that. The Lord, the Lord honored Plus that. for it, yeah. Yeah. Now, I taught real estate for a private school for uh, 17 years, too, so I would I would teach in the evenings, and uh, the school allowed me not to have to teach on Wednesday nights, and I uh, did that for 17 years, and, and uh, same deal there. I told them I wouldn't. I wouldn't teach uh, on Wednesday nights and and uh, Sundays. In the summer, I would teach a, a class, um, and I would fly to uh, Tampa and teach a three-day class. Th- Thursday night, after teaching in Pensacola, I'd f- catch a night flight to Tampa, and I would teach uh, Thursday, Friday, uh, I mean uh, Friday, Saturday, and then uh, Sunday, and then I would fly home Sunday night. I did do that. You know, mm-hmm. but it was a nice for our kids. We have five kids, and we would take them to uh, Disney World and, and Bush Garden, and you know, and they would play while I'm teaching all day. But but it was it was the Lord blessed. It was good. So now you get into real estate. You have a wife. You have five children. God's blessing your family, like prosperous financially. <clears throat> Talk about the foster kids. When did this start? Oh, when Mark, our, our youngest son, we had uh, Scott is our oldest. He was born in Puerto Rico. And then uh, three years later, uh, Janice had Kim and then our daughter. And then uh, then she had uh, Mark three years later. And uh, when Mark got to be about seven, Janice said, I miss having a baby around the house. She said, I love little babies. And, and uh, <laughs> she said, do you mind if we check into being foster parents for newborns until they're adopted? And I said, well, honey, I, you know, I love little kids. That's all right. I didn't know this was going to be life-changing. I said, yeah. I said, yeah, let's check into it. So we did. And we um, were foster parents for uh, Children's Home Society of West Florida. And um, we would get newborns. At, right at, we started visiting them in a hospital, and we would bring them home and keep them until they were adopted. And some we've had as long as eight months. Um, and uh, in fact, that little girl, Janice just met with her last week, and she she showed Janice her new baby. She's married now, and she's a Christian wow. girl. And we've had uh, about 75, actually, I think it was. Uh, Janice would do a scrapbook. She was wonderful. She would do a scrapbook and take pictures of little kids when they, first time they rolled over and that kind of, first time they crawled, you know. And, and then and we weren't in any of the pictures because back then this adoption was very secretive, you know. Mm-hmm. You never could meet the the uh, adoptive parents and uh so but she made a scrapbook like a new bomb would you know and then she would give that to the to the family to the to the uh children's home society and they would give it to the family and but you know that's we, so nice two of the kids we had uh were in um uh we we would take the little babies we had them for a while and we would take them to a basketball game because our kids were playing basketball at, at uh, Pensacola Christian, and uh, some people sitting in the audience there uh, uh, at the school just fell in love with the little kids. And mm. uh, I don't know if you know Reuben uh, uh, Ruffin or not, yeah. Coach Ruffin. Well, Jeremy was one of our foster babies, 
And, uh, Jeremy was my student at the college, and he is an incredible human. Wonderful young man. Yeah, he's he was our coaching. baby. And, really? And we, inter- we took him to a basketball game, and, and uh, Doris and Ruben... Uh, and he's so coaching was, basketball yeah, now. Now he's the... Uh, in fact, I saw him the other night. I went to uh, one of the Escambia High School basketball games. He's the head coach over there and has a great ministry with those kids. Yeah, he he's is... A super kid. That's so funny. You took him to a basketball game. He met his adoptive family... And God's used basketball his entire yeah. life to minister to other men. Isn't that amazing? That And Jeremy, I'm not just saying this. Jeremy, if you're yeah. listening, I love you, buddy. Yeah. And for all those who know Jeremy, he is a phenomenal human. Did you know Chester Keith? Yeah, I know you Chester got, Keith. Well, Andrew was our foster baby, too. Really? Their now, son, Andrew, that they adopted. Now, I don't yeah. know Andrew. How I know Chester Keith is I traveled two summers as an evangelist with Neighborhood Bible Time. Uh-huh. And... There was another man, Seth Myers, who I went to college with. I don't know him. He's, oh man, you talk about on fire for God. And really? he loves the Lord. He's over out, I'm not going to say where he's at, but he's a missionary overseas. Uh-huh. And I, just for his safety. Yeah. And he's a missionary overseas. And he was an intern at Chester Pastor Keith's church. Is that right? And Rufin was the associate pastor back then. Isn't that And something? then we went to do a rally and nobody was there. And we prayed, took a bus, went out, came back, had 50 kids, and did a rally. Loved on those kids, told them about Jesus, and like just booked that church all week. That's incredible. Yeah, it was God. It it's was God. It's a small world, isn't it now? I mean, it is. So two of our foster babies, you know their parents, and yeah. you know the kids. You know, you know Jeremy. Especially. I taught him at college. Yeah. He was in my classes. Isn't that something? And he, he's just a I, great I had, guy. I had no idea you knew the Ruffins. Yeah, yep. that's amazing. Well, they were two of our foster but it was a real ministry, and, and we prayed for the kids, and um, every night we'd pray for with these little kids. And, and one day they called me and, and said, uh, Jim, we got a problem. We, we have two little girls that need uh, a place to sleep tonight. Their mom dropped them off, and, and uh, the, so we're, they're, we need a foster home. Can you, can you, you know, make an exception and take somebody older than a newborn? Because we had only taken newborns. And how can you say no when somebody says, we've got two little girls, they're beautiful little blondes, and, and yeah. uh, one of them's not quite two, one's not quite four, and, uh, and they, they have a, need a place for tonight. And I said, sure. So we got them, and we ended up adopting them. They're our, our daughters now. <laughs> and that's, uh, and they're, they both have, each have three boys. So Praise it's kind of neat. So the words, that was an area of our life that's been just a tremendous joy, a wonderful you know, wonderful experiences with, with sweet kids. And we're in touch with some of the children that were adopted. That's awesome. And then, again, I just want to make sure I'm keeping the timeline clean in my mind. You have, you get out of the military now, you're doing real estate, the business is growing, you're doing fostering, you end up adopting two beautiful girls, you're teaching, you said, for 17 years, also real estate classes transition into i mean if there's anything else that i'm missing you want to talk about by all means talk about it but transition to let's go to today we're at the men's barn meeting because that when if you've heard of the men's barn meeting you're probably thinking okay it's a bunch of guys get together they eat and they talk about god i heard about it for four years and i never went because i already trusted christ as my savior and i didn't want to be taking free food and wasting money right well, then one day, a good friend of mine who hasn't trusted Christ as a savior, we were talking and you had a speaker that was super, like just a perfect fit mm-hmm. for my friend. 
So I invited him. We went and Jim, when I was there, this it blew me away. <laughs> like to hear about it and to experience it are two separate things. Now, so you can start at the beginning, but now I mean I'm talking about I went into a packed and this isn't a little shabby barn. This is a beautiful, humongous barn with like four or five hundred men packed shoulder to shoulder in, having a great time and hearing somebody love on them, telling them about God. So l- tell me about that. How did this start? Well, it goes back a ways. Um, let me say this. Um, it, it has to do with that camp when I was a teenager going to a Christian camp and going forward at a campfire and saying, Lord, whatever you want for me. If it's full-time Christian work or whatever, I'm willing to do it. And um, all my life, I had kind of a void that I, I was a witness. I gave out tracts and I invited people to church and, and you know, and I had, had a testimony and, and, um, and witnessed to some of my sales agents and their families and things like that, prayed with them through difficult times. And, but you know, I always had that aching in my heart of, you haven't, ever going into full-time ministry or even part-time ministry. I always was active. I was a deacon, and I was in a choir and, and taught Sunday school and all that. But uh, I just had a void there. I wondered, why didn't you want me in, in Christian work? You never let me that way. He obviously blessed the real estate. At one point, we had uh, five offices and 155 sales agents. In wow. And uh, and so, and you know, it so the Lord blessed in that regard. We can do a whole other episode of just how to manage that. <laughs> we won't get well, into that today. You know what a juggler's like with six balls in the air? On fire? That's what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> you never get a break when you got five officers. I've worked many years with salespeople, and uh, salespeople are awesome, but they can be a handful to deal with 155. That's quite the accomplishment right no, they, there. They can. <laughs> you know, I used, to, I used to go over to Dr. Horton periodically, and, and uh, we he opened the Pensacola Christian College the same year I opened my real estate office, 1974. Really? Yeah. And we were good friends, because all, all five of my children went from K-4 through K-12 in the academy, and uh, and two of, my, two of my kids graduated from there as well, uh, Mark and Kim, mm-hmm. and uh, also uh, all of my grandchildren, uh, well, seven of them, of the 13, went from K-4 through K-12, and uh, two of them graduated from Pensacola Christian. Mm-hmm. So we've had somebody in Pensacola Christian in my family for for 19 straight years. Wow. I mean, a lot of kids. <laughs> That I got is. to be good friends with Dr. Horton. Yeah, that's a great school. And, I went there yeah. for college. I sent my kids to the academy. Yeah. And, you know, I got, to me, and I know it sounds crazy, it's a lot less strict now. But it is. Even yeah. when I went to college, it was very strict, but it was a yeah. great strict. It was discipline yeah. and integrity and character. And I was more proud of graduating through the system that I made it, that I could uh-huh. handle that kind of pressure. <laughs> yeah. Than I was of the degree. I mean, yeah. the degree was great, but I could I could get that anywhere. Yeah. But the education was top notch. The people there were top notch, and the just the yeah. challenge because I came from, you know, I didn't come from a Christian background, so to speak. Not uh-huh. a lot of discipline in the home at all. 
Yeah. Um, no boundaries, no rules. And then like when we were reading the handbook, the things to know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my mom and best friend were laughing at me audibly out loud. Like you're going there. Are you kidding me? I'm like, just shut up. Give me the book. I threw it in my suitcase. I'm like, it's not like that. I'm like, Pfft. I'm like, they just put this. So if they have to enforce it, it's in the books, but nobody's going to live like that. Sure enough, man, you get up at a certain time and you're, it was like military. It was yeah, like going to West yeah. Point in the Good sense. training. Yeah, yeah really, really. it was great discipline. And now in yeah. life, I got no problems going to work and following mm-hmm. rules because, man, I made it through the fire. I can do anything now. Yeah. Well, when uh, what you, what started the barn ministry is uh, is Janice and I have been praying that as we get older, we've seen so many older Christians uh, say, "I used to do this. I used to do teach Sunday school. I used to go soul winning. Yes. I used to be in the choir." You know, and I, I'm the kind of guy that doesn't want to be a used to be. You know, if, if it, take this, I'm 76. If this was a football game, according to Reader's Digest, the average married man dies about age 76. Um, that was a few years ago I read that. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, I, I, when I was speaking, I would say, you know, um, if life is like a football game, I'm in a two-minute warning. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of this game is over for me as far as this earth, mm-hmm. you know. And that's a sobering thought. And uh, I said, I don't want to be sitting on the bench. I don't want to be on the bench at the end of a game. I want to be out on the playing field as long as I can play. You know, that's how I am. I mean, I don't want to sit on the bench. And I said, uh, maybe the Lord will have something for us, Janice, as we get older that we can do, you know, and continue to do and all. And one day, uh, the kids, uh, Scott called me and he said, hey, Dad, we're going to go to a barn meeting of men in Alberta, Alabama. And I said, a what? <laughs> he said, a barn meeting. And I said, I never heard of it. He said, well, I hadn't either. He said, but a good friend of mine, a Christian guy, um, invited me to come as his guest to a barn where they cook steaks and they have a guest speaker and they have some music. And uh, he and he said, so I told him I would go, but he was 29 years old, married with two children. Before the next barn meeting over there, uh, he had cancer, and it came out of remission, and he died. And he said, so in honor of, of Jim, his name was Jim Sight, he said, in honor of Jim, he said, Mark and I are going to go over. Uh, that's my other son. And he said, uh, would you like to go with us? I said, yeah, I'm, I'll go with you. So little did I know, this was a life-changing trip. So we drove over to Alberta and uh, heard Richard Goss. I still remember he gave his testimony even a great vivid testimony. In fact, we had him as a barn speaker after that. Uh, on the way home from that meeting, Scott said, Dad, we could do that up at your property. I live in the woods, 22 miles out of town with a couple of lakes. And, and a bunch of alligators. Yeah, a bunch of alligators. <laughs> yeah. We had a uh, picnic pavilion across the lake. And, uh, and Scott said, Dad, we could have it in the picnic pavilion and we could have a barn meeting, call it a barn meeting. And have it. I said, Scott, nobody's going to drive 22 miles out of town to get a free steak dinner. Well, so we, he said, well, let's just try it. I said, okay. Never knowing this was the Lord fulfilling. And what year is this? And this was 2002. Uh, uh, oh, two. Okay. Yep. 2002. And he said, uh, he said, let's, let's just schedule it. And let's just just have uh, maybe let's just find some Christian guys we know and let's invite them over and we'll have a cookout and we'll talk about doing this as a ministry. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll get uh, Jim, the guy that died. He said, I'll get his wife and her children to come and they sing and ask her if she would share her testimony. 
So we had a woman speaker at the first barn meeting, and um, and so Jim's uh, widow came, and we had 24 men there in a picnic pavilion on the edge of the lake, and we uh, uh, it grew. The guys all said, yeah, Mr. Porter, let's do it. I said, all right. So we picked the second Thursday of every month, and we started then. We've only missed uh, three, uh, two, uh, th- 2004 uh, Hurricane Ivan, 2005 Hurricane Dennis, and last year uh, Valentine's Day f- fell on the second Thursday, and we had it on one of those days, and it was a disaster because not many people came, or guys just brought their wives because it was like their time out for a mm-hmm. free steak dinner for a date. And so we decided we're trying to teach guys to be better husbands and all. And so probably scheduling a meeting on Valentine's Day is not a good idea. So, yeah, yeah. So, so other than those... So 18 years, only three misses, and two were because of natural disasters. Yeah. Man. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, no, we missed for Hurricane Michael because they didn't know where it was going to hit this past year. Yes. Yep. Yeah. They and made so, a big deal about that. Yeah. It, that Pensacola was in the target, and it was a major hurricane. And it, it turned and never hit us. It turned, and, and it, it devastated Mexico Beach and, and yep. uh, Panama. And, and that's and, isn't that crazy? I, I'm not from here, yeah. but I'm thinking it turns, it doesn't hit us. Three hours away, yep. complete annihilation of certain areas. Yeah. And we literally got... A drizzle of rain. It's yeah, just crazy. It's amazing. Thank the Lord. We were on the correct side of it, you know, being on the on the west side of it because it's the cyclone going counterclockwise. Yeah, the day after that hurricane, my truck got stolen. It did? Somebody stole it to take to, to take Panama down there City and work. <laughs> and work. I mean, I know what happened. I don't know what happened, but I know what happened. Yeah. I had a nice work truck and then it's uh, like, poof, gone. Yeah. I love that truck. So we, if we you're listening and you have my meetings. truck, I will not press charges. Just bring it back. <laughs> bring it back. That was my favorite vehicle ever, and you, uh, it was gone. And you never found it. No, it was gone. I, I'm, I'm like I said. I'm if I had a bet, like my house, I'd bet like somebody took it to work out there or loot houses. I hate to say it, but it was a nice work truck. Yeah. It wasn't huge value. It was just yeah. a nice truck. But that's that. That time was just chaos. I mean, yeah, the police were overwhelmed. I'm not going to ask them to find my truck. It's yeah, like, oh, yeah, they had enough problems. Yeah, they had enough. I mean, we, you got life. You got rape. You got yeah. murder. I mean, let's let's deal with the things that matter. Forget my truck. <laughs> yeah. So go on. Well, well so, so you got the men's bar me, and you launched the first one. Yeah, and and we started. Uh, it grew every. We literally had an increase in attendance every meeting, and it was amazing. And before we knew it, we were outgrowing the picnic pavilion, mm-hmm. and so. The guys, it's all run by, there's no, nobody's paid. Nobody gets a nickel, salary or anything. Even our bookkeeper is, uh, does it as a, as a donation to the ministry. It's amazing. Uh, and so it's run 100% by laymen and volunteers. Mm-hmm. We have a board of directors, uh, all Christian businessmen in, in the area. Not businessmen, but all Christian mature men from different churches. It's not sponsored by any one church, which is good because... You know, we've had your pastor come speak. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. we've had Hillcrest pastor, we've had Olive pastor. In the early years, we only used local people. We had no budget, we had no money, and uh, but it has has grown to the point where um, it's still it's totally free. There's nothing to pay or join, and it's not a threat to any church. So the churches like it to use it as an outreach ministry of their men, so their men can invite people come to the barn, and who wouldn't step foot in a normal yeah, church? Yeah. So yep. you, yeah, who wouldn't go to a, to a regular Yeah, I'm church? telling you, I've gone a couple times now with, yeah. with people that would never have stepped foot in the church, but they heard the gospel. And then what's great, I don't know if you've, I'm sure you realize this, but who knows, 
for me as someone coming to visit and bringing a guest, mm-hmm. not only are they being exposed to the love of God, but then we have a 45-minute ride home to talk about it. I never thought about that. That's, I mean, literally, you said <laughs> yeah. who would come out that far? And as soon as you said it, I'm thinking, that's perfect. Yeah. Because we're driving out, having conversation. They're engaging in this experience. And then we have 45 minutes to sit awkward or talk mm-hmm. about it. And it's uh-huh. beautiful. Yeah. Well, we keep it simple. We don't allow politicians, uh, you know, and we don't, uh, we try to keep it real simple. We have gospel music. We have a beautiful steak dinner with baked potatoes and all you can eat. Uh, I mean, say all you can eat until we run out of food, but. Uh, and good quality food. Yeah. It's not cheap yeah, little good, leathery steak. Yeah, it's great. We've now had over, as of last month, we've had over 60, uh, 60,000 people come to board meetings. <laughs> And actually, uh, 3,535 have uh, signed cards that they accepted Christ at the meeting. Man, praise so God. So it's just been amazing, really. Uh, we've seen a lot of, I mean, uh, it's it's just incredible how God has met the need because financially it grew in expenses. And for a while, you know, I could afford to to uh, foot the bill. And, mm-hmm. um, and then we have a donation box. We don't take up a collection, but there's a donation box. The regular attendees are good about mm-hmm. helping us. But it it, uh, it it never would even begin to. Now it's about over five thousand a month for for the food and speakers. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, because we have to pay. We have world class speakers now, and they they we fly them in, we put them in a motel, and uh, and we give them an honorarium in addition to their uh, travel expenses, and uh, we bring in the music from Georgia and uh, Tennessee, and uh, for the last two years we've been doing that. And uh, so it's it's expensive, but God has miraculously met every need. It's just it amazes us every time. One time, we had a board directors meeting, and I said, "You guys, we we have three thousand dollars in the kitty." And uh, at that time, it was costing twenty six hundred dollars just for the food, just for the food. And uh, I said, uh, and Scott said, "Well, I've got twelve speakers lined up from all over the country to fly in." So do you want me to cancel every other one and we'll use local people to save the expense of flight and, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and motel? And, uh, the guys voted, no, let's just trust the Lord. He's, he's met every need. And unbelievably, within two weeks, we had a Christian businessman who lives a thousand miles from here called and said, the Lord has spoken to me and said, find out how much it costs for the food and I'll pay for one year's food bill. Oh, man. <laughs> within two weeks of that meeting. And you never made it public. Never made it public. And, and it was incredible. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will Unbelievable. Provide. And and he sent us a check. I did the math and figured out exactly what it cost for food. At that time, it was uh, run 2600 a month for food. When Because I remember giving that figure. And he, he multiplied it by 12 and mailed us a check. And so, you know, God has always met the needs there. And uh, just now, just last in the last four weeks, uh a, a Christian business uh, in town who asked to be anonymous said, "I'll give you ten thousand dollars if up to ten thousand. I'll match every donation that is earmarked special for your barn ministry for for uh, through the thirty first of January, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'll match it dollar for dollar. So if we get ten thousand donated, we'll have twenty thousand going into this new year. Wow! And uh, it was amazing." Uh, People sent checks in the, the very first minute they heard about it. And, uh, and then I had a phone call the two days before the end of this month. Uh, I had a phone call and somebody said that, uh, 
I've uh, sent you $450 through PayPal. And at that point, we had $9,100 in. And then, (laughs) so now we had $9,550. We needed $450 more to, to maximize that, that matching. Yeah. And on New Year's Eve, I got a call from somebody from Fort Walton Beach who has attended uh, the barn ministry several times. And he said, did you meet your goal? I said, we're within $450. And uh, I said, and several people have said they're going to send us something. We hadn't gotten it. And the date is really the 31st today. He said, I'm going to date a check today and send you $500. Praise God. So thank the Lord. So that was a blessing. You know, we're not in it for the money, obviously. You know, we, we spend it, you know, wisely in the ministry. Oh, absolutely. But, but, I mean, but the Lord has just blessed it. And we've, we've had good results. God's m- been good. Money's a tool. To and if we people. don't have the tool, we can't make the machine work. You can reach more people if you, if you have it. Yeah, you can. Yeah, 3,300 I mean, men yeah. have trusted Christ because... Mm-hmm. They were brought there, and some of the bring was, I get a free steak dinner, I get to hear cool music, and I get to listen to somebody interesting. Mm -hmm. That all costs money, but the Mm -hmm. fruit is just amazing. If someone does want to get involved and help, we have listeners all over the world. How could they do that? Could I put a link in the show notes for you? Yes, that would be great. Um, And we have a website. It's called, actually, we're working on it right now. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of, we've went off the air for a while and we're just getting it back right. But it is the, uh, mensbarnmeeting.com. Okay. Mensbarnmeeting.com. Yeah. And then is, if whatever we can find, I'll make sure there's a link to the proper working donation tab in the show notes if you want to get involved in this amazing ministry. Um, again, just to repeat, it's 18 years, over 3,000 men have trusted Christ as their Savior. They've only missed three months because of hurricanes and natural disasters. So this is loyal, dedicated people not taking a dime. They're using all the money to love on people and reach them with the gospel. So, okay, so now you have the men's barn meeting. Let's bring that to today. Where Where is the barn meeting okay. today and where are you going with it? Uh, well, we, we outgrew the uh, pavilion. And to show you what kind of guys help us out, uh, one day the guys just uh, showed up over there and they, uh, they brought lumber and they said, let's build a, a bigger deck on, on the picnic pavilion and um, extend the roof and so we can hold more guys. And we did that. And then we outgrew that. And then we, and we were between the two lakes. We have two lakes there. We were between the two lakes and we had tarp spread over the trees because in case of rain and one day a rainstorm came during a barn meeting and we probably had 200 people there and uh, the the uh, the blue tarps we had over there retained water and collapsed down on the tables of people and all it was just horrible that could actually hurt with all that water i know it i mean it was just not good and the guys came to me and they said mr porter we call it the barn meeting we really need a barn would you uh, let us build a barn on the property? And I said, sure. And I said, how big do you want the barn? They said, uh, 40 by 80. So, and that ought to hold, you know, like 300 people. So we, uh, we decided we would do the barn. Well, I picked the spot and, uh, I, I took my wife out and I said, Janice, I said, you want to see where we're going to build the barn? She said, yeah. So we went out. And uh, I drove her out on a little four-wheeler we got, and uh, I said, here's where I'm going to build the barn. 
I have it flagged. You could see the red flags around there with the corners of the bar. And she said, you're not serious, are you? I said, yeah, really. She said, no, you can't be serious. I said, what are you talking about? That's where it's going to be. You see the markers? I put them out. She said, Jim, don't the guys come early so they can walk around the lake and some of them fish a little bit? And we allow them to catch and release in, in the lake. And uh, she said, and the sun sets over the lake. It's beautiful. She said, you pick the spot in the woods. They can't even see the lake. <laughs> I said, honey, I'm in real estate. You can't mess up the value of waterfront property by building a barn. And she looked at me and said, oh, I must have been mistaken. I thought we dedicated this to the Lord. Oh, guess where the barn is? <laughs> right where she said. <laughs> right on the lake. <laughs> that's awesome. And so the guys love it. And um, That's a good woman. Yeah, good it wife. is. Well, you know, Hurricane Ivan, that was in 2004, and um, Hurricane Ivan leveled the barn, and we had just finished putting the, putting the, the pillars up and putting uh, all of the, uh, we had 32 trusses, and we rented a crane, and we had a work day. It's all done by volunteers, and the guys came, and we, we had all the trusses up and everything, but the roof wasn't on it yet to secure it. Mm-hmm. And I was in Alaska on a caribou hunt, and I, I heard on the radio, a Hurricane Ivan is, is in the Gulf of Mexico. And I shot a caribou, and a guy landed to pick up my caribou, and I said to the pilot, I was 180 miles from the nearest, nearest uh, civilization. Mm-hmm. And a little plane circled around, landed to get the caribou. And I said, uh, have you heard anything about that storm in the Gulf? He said, yeah. He said, this morning I was in Anchorage, and they said something is supposed to hit a little place called Pensacola. It's a Category 5. And I said, oh, no. I said, I'm in a real estate business. We manage 600 houses. Uh, and in, I'm from in, Pensacola. And I'm from Pensacola. I said, and, and we have a hurricane plan, and all Vacations are canceled for my my two sons and I. We each have 200 houses we're responsible to get pictures of and notify the owners. And I said, can you get me out of here? He said, not tonight. He said, um, I can't carry anything else other than this caribou and this little airplane. He said, I'll come back tomorrow and get you. So I'm home, I'm in a tent that night, 26 degrees, and I'm thinking my poor wife and kids they're just got through a, the worst hurricane that's ever hit Pensacola. And the next day, he picked me up and flew me to Lake Clark, and I waited there all day and caught another flight to Anchorage. And the first front page of the of the uh, the newspaper had a picture of the Pensacola Scambia uh, Interstate 10 bridge collapsed with that tractor and trailer hanging over into mm. the water, and it showed a picture of a marina that was completely demolished on hundreds of boats in it. And I thought, oh, my, that's my hometown, and I'm here in Alaska. And it took me until Sunday to get home. And yeah, I, had a, I couldn't even fly in here. The airport was closed for a month. But anyway, um, so we had to rebuild the barn. Well, it was funny. The only thing standing in that, built, in that barn, it was leveled except all the, all the six-by-six posts down the two sides and the headers on them were standing and the, the the roof was completely caved in, crashed. Not a piece of wood left. And my wife said, "Do you know why that's still standing?" I said, "Why?" She said, "You were not here when they poured the ba- the slab cement slab for the base." She said, "But I went around and under each of those posts, they had twelve twelve by twelve, two feet deep under each post, a, a mm-hmm. footing." She said, "I I wrote a Bible verse 
and put it in a plastic bag and put it in there. And it's under each of those posts. And that's the only thing that's left. That's incredible when you think about it. That's awesome. That's the value of a good wife, too. Yeah. <laughs> wife with faith and a God that delivers. <laughs> so wow. in uh, 2008, we realized that... Um, that when we have uh, what we call a sportsman's night at the barn, where we let guys bring their any trophies they want and to show off, and uh, from deer hunting or fishing or whatever, you know, we always doubled our attendance. Mm-hmm. So the boys said, "Dad, why don't we buy a trailer and put world-class white-tailed deer mounts in it and take it to churches? We'll take the barn on the road. We'll go to churches that are having wild game dinner, which mm-hmm. are very popular in the South, and." Um, and we'll bring our deer collection, and people, it'll be a drawing card to get people who won't go to a church service, but they would come and see these if, mm-hmm. if they promote it. And so we started that, and uh, it's amazing how that has grown. Yeah, I think your bio image you sent me, that was mm-hmm. just a monster animal. How, what, yeah. what was that? Yeah, I'm trying to think of which one it was. Uh, it looked like a giant elk or... The, the one, was the one I shot? I believe so, yeah. There's it, a picture. Yeah, yeah I shot, but that was this year, the biggest deer I shot. That was huge. Yeah, but that, but you know, and none of the deer on our display are because we make it clear that trophies are not trophies are fading memories. Mm -hmm. You know, if you if you have a trophy, um, it's it means a lot to you, maybe your kids. But as you get older, one generation from now, a friend of mine called me, and this is what where we where we came with this name. A friend of mine called me, and he said, uh, Jim, he said. I'm a, I was a water skiing champ for years. He said, I have about 200 trophies in my garage getting dust on them. And he brought this up at a Rotary Club meeting, and he said, do you know of any use we can have for these? I'd be glad to donate them. You can, you know, change the wording on it and mm-hmm. put a different thing on the, on the trophy itself. Um, he said um, that, that uh, you know, I hate to see them just sitting in a garage going to waste. And I th- said, can I have one for our ministry? Because I want to use that. I also have a Super Bowl ring, um, a replica of a Super Bowl ring, because I happen to know a, a football player that won a Super Bowl ring, and he sold that ring to pay for his divorce. Mm. See? So everybody has a trophy of some type, and um, it, it, yours might be a lower golf score. Yours might be a, a bigger fish. Mm-hmm. Yours might be a bigger deer. It, it, there's every every field has has uh, things you strive for, but you know the real trophies are the changed lives of men and women, boys and girls, because of the blood of Christ. That's the real trophy, mm-hmm. and that's we have one trophy in our collection that my son found in a garbage can, and uh, somebody was throwing it away. You know they become meaningless over time. And you call this ministry trophies of grace? It's called trophies of grace. Yeah, so out of the men's barn, and, and we didn't kill any of these deer. Mm-hmm. These are these are replicas of world class deer, and people come from all over to see it. They get in there and they they see them in a church display, and they'll they'll call their friends on their cell phones. You got to get over here. You're not going to believe these deer. These are serious trophies. They really are. Yeah, we had thirty in one truck, and we just gave that truck and all the deer to a, a guy that has a ministry in uh, in Dalton, Georgia, and he takes it now and. Uses it up there. We have another. We have two of them ourselves that we use. We have a big one and one collection of uh, twenty-two deer. Another one of eleven deer, and um, and we take those to different places. 
you know, and, and any churches and you know, all over the country. Now, also, a friend of ours in Wisconsin started a ministry like that, and he now has Trophies of Grace Northern Division, and he covers the north part of the United States. So we, it's a unique ministry. It's kind of neat. And it just keeps growing and growing yeah. and growing. Yeah, and same with barn meetings. There's at least six other places now that have barn meetings that grew out of this one. It's amazing. There's one in uh, Greenville. One started last month in Montgomery, Alabama. Mm. There's one in Pontotoc um, um, next to uh, Memphis, Tennessee. No, next to Meridian, Mississippi, Pontotoc, Mississippi. And there's one in Sampson, Alabama. And there's one in Crestview. There's one in uh, Paris, Georgia, or Paris, Tennessee, uh, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So these are bar ministries that people came here and they went back and started one. Started their own. And I just sent some to uh, a packet of information on what is a barn and all about how we operate. I just sent it to uh, someone uh, uh, that just this week I put it in the mail, actually. To help them start. Th- yeah, to help them start it. Yeah, and if you're listening now and you have the means and the funding and you want to start one, I'm sure, Jim, you wouldn't mind talking to him to help him start them up. be glad to, yeah. Yeah. And you could... Well, let's do this. We've covered a lot of ground today, and I'm so thankful for your time, and we could keep talking. But I know that when we were talking in the past, you had some funny stories you you were sharing, and you I'd love to share maybe one or two of those with the listeners. What do you think? Well, a couple of foolish things that I've done in my life, and I know we all make mistakes, and probably everybody's had a close call. Um, when I was real little, we had a rug that we put new carpet in our house, and we put the old rug outside. We used it as a wrestling and boxing match, for, <laughs> you know. And um, my dad boxed a little when he was in the army, and he taught his kids to box. And so Harry and I would would box on that mat. Well, one day one of the friends were down there playing, and we got the bright idea: "Hey, roll me up in the rug." And I laid down on that rug, and they rolled me up. My arms pinned against my body, and then they started jumping on both ends of it, and that's the only time in my life I've ever experienced uh, pure, pure, uh, pure panic. Mm. I couldn't breathe, and I couldn't move my arms. And thank the Lord, my mom happened to look out the window and see what was going on, and ran out and unrolled me, or I probably could have died in a few minutes. Yeah, you know that was stupid. I also one day. We were playing, I was on Dead End Street. Well, they sold the property behind us, and they were building a subdivision. And up in, now in the south, we don't have basements, but up where I live in, in New Jersey, they always dig a cellar or a basement, we call it, and um, and then build a house above that. So they have like a, a man cave or downstairs, something like that. Well, they had all of these in a row up there, and we had about two weeks of rain every day, all day, and it filled up these basements with water. And so we decided, hey, you know, we'll have a swimming pool. We'll go over there and swim in that basement. Oh, no. And I dove in head first and hit a cement block underwater, which knocked me out. Thank the Lord. Why didn't it break my neck? You know, that was such a stupid. Or you could have drowned or bled out. Foolish thing to to do. You know, I was unconscious. My friends pulled me out. I had a stiff neck for a couple (laughs) weeks, but that was foolish. One time I had a motorcycle and I was driving um, on the on the high speed train route between Philadelphia and New York. It went through a little town called uh, a little crossing that was called Lawrence Station. I had a swimming hole there. We used to go swimming there. Well, I was riding my motorcycle uh, through there, and I and I really wasn't old enough to be riding yet. I think I was like fifteen. Had to be seventeen in New Jersey, mm-hmm. and uh, I I rode over to my uncle's house, and I was. Coming back, and that we didn't have crossing uh, uh, 
arms that come down. Then they had a guy standing there with a stop sign in the daytime and at night a lantern, an old guy. And uh, he was standing there. It was broad daylight. And he was on the other side of the tracks from me. And he was standing there with the stop sign because the train was coming and it was coming from New York heading south to Philly. Mm -hmm. So I stopped. And I'm sitting there thinking, when that guy passes, when that train goes by, I'm going to do a wheelie and see how close I can come to the caboose, which sounded like a fun thing to do as a kid. You it's know. one of those ideas that sounds good in your head. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm racing the engine, and the second that that caboose went was just about past me, I popped the clutch and did a wheelie and shot across there, not knowing that there was a train behind it coming the other way, going toward New York. Oh, no. And there was no way, no way to stop. And... He, I don't know how close he came to me, but it was closer than me from where I'm sitting from you. And we're sitting like four feet away. Yeah, it, it was it was unbelievable. It scared me. I was shaking so bad. I stopped and got off my cycle on the other side. And the guard, he was almost draped over the stop sign. He's, and I still remember his words. He said, what's the matter with you, kid? Don't you want to live? And that was foolish. So, you know, you do things thoughtlessly. So, and everybody has experiences where they've had a close call or something. I've had more than my share. I think when I get to heaven, my guardian angel is going to be easy to be spotted. It'll be the one with no feathers. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, had no, a new, I bought a new Ducati, Ducati motorcycle one time um, when I was 17. And uh, I wanted to show my buddies. And I knew they were to drive in movie theater. And uh, I knew a shortcut to get to it. So I cut through a cornfield uh, on a road, a country road through the cornfield. And I was going, it was dark. I was going way too fast and came to a 90 degree turn and went straight out mm. into the cornfield. I laid the bike over and slid out into the cornfield. And the next day I went, I shook me up, you know, and it didn't hurt the bike. It just bent the fender a little. But I went back the next day and I came within five or six feet of a telephone pole that I never even saw until the next day. And that's probably why you missed it. Yeah. You know, wherever you look on a motorcycle is usually where you go. Yeah, well, that, I, I didn't see it. thank God you didn't see it. Now, what about the T-28 story? I remember you talking to me about that. Well, um when I was a flight instructor, I taught uh, first my first couple years teaching, I taught um, close formation. And we would fly two feet wingtip to wingtip and 10 feet step down and 20 feet nose to tail. So you're very close to the other pilot. Your two planes are real close together. Well, I was an instructor and second tour pilot, and uh, I was teaching my, uh, I had an Italian foreign student, a guy from Italy who spoke broken English. You know, and uh, he was one of my two students. The other guy was a guy named Hank Lippincott from New Jersey. And uh, we shouldn't have been flying bad weather, real bad weather. But that we were behind on students. We had to fly, so we were out. And I was trying to find clear air to do all these maneuvers. You're supposed to be at 5,000 feet. I couldn't be at 5,000. I was down at 2,500 feet trying to stay under the, the cloud layer. And there was a storm also moving in from the Gulf, a bad, bad storm. And um, the squadron recalled all flight, all uh, all solo students except my two. And they they mm. said because I had to finish these guys. I had a double flight that day. It was two point six hours in the air, and that's a long time in a little T twenty eight airplane, mm -hmm. and um, for fuel. And so we're flying, and uh, the weather's deteriorating bad. Uh, they called me and said. Uh, Porter, how much more time do you need? And I said, I need another 20, 30 minutes to finish all the maneuvers that they had to finish that day. It was a Friday morning because the next day they were scheduled to fly cross country 
by themselves in formation, and they couldn't go unless they passed this check I was giving them. So you felt pressure from multiple sides, yeah, lots yeah, of things going on. Right. So they, um, I finished. They recalled all duels, all, all flights with both an instructor and a student in them, except my flight. My, my nickname was Phantom. It was Phantom Flight. They said, Phantom, stay out and finish these guys and, and get in here. We got This field's going to go closed. So we finished, and we're heading in, and we went instrument conditions in the entry channel. So we had a break off. We could not continue on. My students were not instrument qualified. They would have crashed. Mm-hmm. Was, so we broke off. I called the squadron. I said, we couldn't get in the field from the entry. They said, try the alternate entry from the north. Maybe the storm is moving from the south to the north. Maybe you can beat it into the field if you come in from the north. So I uh, took my students up north, and we started heading in. And uh, it it was really looking bleak ahead. I could see I didn't think we were going to make, the, make it, and I thought I better cl- get close to them. I was about 1,000 yards behind them, grading, mm-hmm. grading them for their positions and all. So I added full power, and I'm screaming up to them, and they disappear in a cloud bank. And I called my lead, and I said, uh, Phantom 1, can you still see the ground? He said, barely, sir. And boom, like that, I was in it. Zero visibility. It's like somebody threw a white blanket over the cockpit and mm. couldn't see a thing. And uh, and I knew my two students were two feet apart in that. Mm-hmm. And I was going to hit them now within probably within 10 seconds because I had a 40 knot closure rate, 40, about 50 miles an hour closure rate on mm-hmm. them. So I was going to, I was going to hit them. So I completely shut my power down. I activated my speed brake and uh, instinctively I hung a hard left turn. It was the worst thing I could have done for the students because it's, it's very difficult to, to, to have a, a flight turn into the wingman. If you turn away from your wingman, then he can stay with you. But when you turn into him, he's now got to, you're coming toward him. It's, it's, if you're a pilot, you understand, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. And so I really should have turned right and had them turn left. But mine came instinctively. I didn't want to hit him. I just hung a hard left, which turned out to be a blessing because I turned into the heart of the storm. They turned out of it. And so they were okay. But I'm talking to them, telling them to go back to uh, the J oil field where we just passed over and orbit until I join them. And I for- while I'm talking to them, I'm in a hard turn. I probably was upside down at that point, And I forgot my speed brake was down. And my airspeed is just dropping off. And I got vertigo, which is a disorientation. Yes. And you, you don't know if you're upside down, right side up. You can't read your instruments. In fact, my roommate in, in uh, flight school was a flight instructor and was killed with the very same thing. He had vertigo in a storm. He only oh, he came out of the storm upside down and couldn't pull out and they killed both him and a student. And he was in our wedding, my my wife and I's wedding. But I was in deep trouble and I could not get the airplane uh, out of the situation. I added I raised the speed brake, I added power and my altimeter is spinning like a clock going down. And uh I just knew that uh you know I got I'm gonna have to bail out. So I looked at my altimeter and I was too low to bail out. I was already past a thousand feet, and this parachute in this plane, you don't eject, you have to jump out and pull a ripcord. It takes a thousand feet to open. Yeah, when you're able to do it. No, no, he's jumping out and hitting the ground without your parachute open. You know, you might <laughs> stay in the airplane. And so I did the only other thing I know to do, and that's pray. And why didn't I do that first? Yeah. You know, save me a lot of grief. And uh, and I, uh, I just hit my mic button in her cockpit. So I could hear it, and I just said out loud three words. I said, pleadingly, I, aloud, I said, God, help me, like pleading. And, you know, it, it, instantly, 
miraculously. It, it, no doubt it was a miracle because uh, it, there was no way I was going to pull out of that. And uh, I looked out the left side of my cockpit and it was like a flash of, of light in a dark night, you know, and then it's going like a lightning bolt or something in the woods at night. Mm-hmm. I saw the ground, then it was white again, but it cured my vertigo. I knew the ground was out to my left mm-hmm. and I was very close to it. So I knew I was, I was on my uh, wing, my right wing up, my left wing down, vertical. And so I knew what to do. I rolled right to correct it. And my gyroscope, which is an instrument that tells you your wing position um, in the airplane, it had been tumbling because I think because I was upside down. But it settled down and I could now see my wing position. And my vertigo was cured once I saw the ground. But again, instantly it was white again. So I couldn't see it anymore. But I didn't have vertigo. So I, I got my wings level, added power, and I said, thank you, Lord. You know. How many times, and, and I pulled out of it, I watched the altimeter, it went down to 300 feet, which is very close. Yeah, that's super close. The length close. of a football field from the ground, way too low in an airplane. Yeah, and um, trees are higher than that. It just kept going down, down, because you don't pull out of something like that instantly. It takes a while to get flying, and I watched it, and it, it went down to 300 feet, and then started to gradually climb, and I said, thank you, Lord. And uh, it was a it was a very emotional thing for me. Not then. Because uh, I was, adrenaline was pretty high right then. I was feeling pretty good right at that point. Mm-hmm. And I said, thank you, Lord. I'm not turning. I'm still in the storm. I'm not turning until I see blue sky and sunshine. I don't care where I come out. I didn't even know what direction I was heading. I yeah. came out at Crestview, which is about 50 miles away. Yep. At uh, 5,000 feet, I, got, I broke out of the storm. And I took a look at that beautiful sunshine, blue sky, and I thought, Lord, you're going to have to help me with this. I got to go back down through it to get to my students. And I did. But I didn't have vertigo. And so I flew instruments and went, you know, down. I called my student and I said, uh, Phantom One, uh, what altitude are you and where are you? He said, uh, I'm orbiting the water tower. It's a Jay oil field in Jay, Florida uh, at 900 feet. He said, I can't go any higher. The, my tail's in the, in the clouds. I said, is your, uh, your wingman with you? He said, yes, sir. The poor kid was panicked. He had radio failure. And so he could, he didn't have a clue what was going on, that Italian kid. But he wow. did a great job flying the airplane. Uh, we communicated with him on that flight with uh, hand signals. Uh, Navy teaches hand signals. For exact in situations yeah. like this? Well, mainly it's for in combat. If you have mm-hmm. radio silence, you have to be able to signal to your other airplanes mm-hmm. what you're doing and all. Oh, okay. And, and so, you know, they had already had that. And um, so that was good. So I joined them. And uh, our problems weren't over, though. We uh, we were low on fuel. Now the field was closed. Squadron said, uh, continue to orbit, and uh, we'll call you with instructions. 20 minutes goes by. They called me back and said, we got permission for you to shoot an instrument approach into North Whiting. And I said, uh, can't do it. My students cannot shoot an actual instrument approach. I said that they're not instrument qualified. They haven't even had RI training or radio instrument training yet. And they said, okay, you got a problem. Then you tell us what you're going to do. Now we're getting real low on fuel. So I called all the airfields around, the Air Force Base in Hurlburt and Fort Walton. I called uh, Ellison, had a helicopter field back then, and I mm-hmm. called them. They were closed. I called uh, Bates in uh, Mobile, they were closed. I called Keysore Air Force Base in, in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, and they were Gulfport, and they were closed. Everything was shut down on the coast with this storm. And the squadron called me back and said, uh, we just got permission for you to fly to uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and land at Maxwell Air Force Base. I said, uh, wonderful, but we don't have enough fuel. I got low fuel warning lights now. 
mm-hmm. saying we cannot make Montgomery. So I said, what about the field in Bruton? It's a little north of where we were. Maybe the storm hadn't gotten there yet, you know, and it's in the woods in Bruton. <laughs> it's where it landed, we just landed and touched down and take off. You don't stop there. And uh, they said, you can't go to Bruton. The field's closed. I said, what was the weather and how long ago did you close it? They said, we closed it 15 minutes ago. And uh, the crash, uh, they said the weather was marginal VFR, marginal that you could land. And but nobody's flying, so we closed the field. I said, "Well, I'm going to go there." They said, "You can't." It, uh, the crash crew wasn't there. I said, "I don't need a crash crew. I need a runway." <laughs> so, yeah. so we went there and landed. I declared an emergency, and we went there, stayed all day until the until the storm passed, and then we flew back home. And uh, I walked in the house that night, and my wife said, "What's wrong with you? What? What? Why are you, you look sick or something?" I said, "Honey," I said, "I almost got killed today. I almost was in eternity today." Now, the neat thing, I was saved. I would have gone to heaven. But, you know, uh, you never know when your time's up. Here I am having a great time being a Navy pilot and all, and instantly facing a life-and-death situation. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people don't don't have second chances like that. I was already a Christian. I know if I had passed away then, I would, have, I would have been in heaven. But I looked at my wife. She was pregnant with a little girl then, and I, I thought, you know, I almost didn't get to raise these kids. Oh, and, wow. uh, it was a pretty sobering thought. You know, but the word was good and uh, got me through that. He is good. He is good. I used to lecture my flight students before a flight, and I would I would write on the chalkboard three things. I'd say one, two, and three. I said, all decisions in your life are um, are boiled down to three things. You know, when you think about it. all other decisions are minor. What you're wearing today is a decision. What you know, what time you got up is a decision. Where you're going is a decision. Everything is a decision. But some decisions are major, and one of them is your relationship with your Creator. What is your relationship with the Lord? Mm-hmm. That's number one. There is nothing on the planet Earth more important than that relationship. And number two, if it's in God's will that you marry, choose the right person. There's, that's something you pray about and make sure that, that is, that's a major decision Huge, in life. important decision. And number three is, how are you going to occupy your time that God gives you on this Earth? Your vocation or advocation. What, what are you, how are you going to use your time? That's another thing. And then I would, I would, the Navy guys, I would say, guess what num- the three are? And then I would put number three, naval aviation. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, but I would introduce them to the fact that, uh, that they need to think about their spiritual condition. Number one, that's more important than anything on the planet. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I often use that illustration. And, uh, and what was good to me, I was able to lead. Uh, as an El Salvador student to the Lord one night, I had on the back of my helmet, ride at your own risk, I'm leaving at the rapture. And everybody <laughs> got the airplane in the back seat would ask you, what does that mean? So and Explain to the audience, what is a rapture? Yeah, yeah. Rapture is what we're looking for, the return of Christ uh, in the clouds to uh, the dead in Christ. Those that have accepted Christ will be caught up and, uh, and go to heaven. And uh, those that have died before us will be raised from the dead uh, that are Christians and go to heaven. And it's going to happen, and the rest of the people are going to be left here. And this earth is going to go through a, a difficult time with uh, the influence of Christianity removed from it. Mm-hmm. And the Lord will return after that and uh, and rule every nail bow. One day, everyone will recognize uh, Christ as the king, and uh, that's that's his reign. But um, but that was a neat thing on my helmet because it gave me an easy way at opening. Opening your conversation. Yeah, I, I had that on there for like seven years. 
Uh, I printed it in a print shop. Actually, I worked in a print shop in college, and I oh, yeah? and I printed that. Yeah. So, yeah. but the word was good. So, man, so you've had an interesting life, Jim. So you you go through, you go to college, you join the military, you get out realty teaching, you go through. You want to, like you said, the average life the Bible talks about seventy eighty years. You're right there, seventy six years old. Yeah. You're you know, I looked at you and I've known you. I thought you're healthy as a horse. You're just going to keep moving forward till yeah. God takes you home. And then Not you just so. shared some information with me. You want to, so we went through yeah. your past. We went through kind of the present yeah. and then where you're going. Well, we're kind of right in between. Let's, let's start there. Where are you today? Well, in 2017, I went in for an annual physical and the doctor said, you're in great shape, Jim. You look good and you feel good and everything. So I'll see you next year. And as I'm walking out, he said, uh, by the way, have you ever had a, a, a scan, a body scan? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, uh, do I need one? And he said, no, but, you know, you, you get one free when you're at your age. I, I was 73 at the time. And he said, you get one uh, one free one in your lifetime under Medicare. And they'll do a body scan and just to get a look at your organs and things and see how things are going. And I said, well, if it's free, yeah, sign me up. So I did. And I went in and uh, had an ultrasound done. And the doctor's called me in and my wife, and he said, uh, you have an uh, aortic, uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm, which could be life-threatening. Wow. And uh, very serious if that, if that ruptures. It's like a flat, like a tire on a car that gets a balloon in it. It's a weak spot in your blood vessel. Mm-hmm. Mine's in the main artery in, uh, in my, uh, just below my heart. And uh, he said, I'm going to send you to a specialist. He might want to operate on what, but so he did. I went to a specialist. The specialist said, I don't really trust the ultrasound. I want to get a better picture. I'm going to get you a CT scan. So I go in for a CT scan to to determine the exact size of it because if it reaches five centimeters, it's considered life-threatening. And he he looked at it and called me in. He said, well, your CT scan shows that it's uh, 3.25, so it's nothing to worry about yet. It will grow as you get older. That's normal, he said. Um, We'll monitor it every six months, and if it gets close to five, we'll do a stent, which is a fairly routine procedure now. And uh, because if it ruptures, you're basically dead in a very few minutes. Yeah, it's and, a very short period. Yeah, unless you're right in the hospital, you just don't have a chance. Oh, we just interviewed a guest I was telling you last yeah. week, and Danny Covey from Canada, he had an aneurysm, massive, mm-hmm. in surgery, in open-heart surgery. They found it completely separate, so they were able to save his life. So that's, so, like you said, it's... Yeah. instantaneous so how god yeah. orchestrated that is amazing that was that's... and for them to find it you're walking out thinking you're healthy yeah and that i was like hey did you ever have this done I let's do it good. just in case you know i really did i mean i feel great <laughs> my strength is good and and uh you know i don't hurt anywhere and all so and now i got an i got an aneurysm well he said but um i discovered something that's more concerning uh he said did you know that you have a pretty large tumor in your bladder and i said great day no and uh, he said, uh, I'm going to refer you immediately to a, to a doctor to, uh, to take a look at that because he said, I think you need to have surgery right away. So I went to, uh, to a, another doctor, and he confirmed that it was cancer, and it was the size of about a golf ball, just a little smaller than a golf ball. He said between a gumball, gumball and a golf ball. He said pretty good size, but it was not metastasized, and it was all contained within the, the bladder. He said, I can't believe you didn't have any symptoms, no pain or anything like that. I said, no, nothing. 
He said, oh, it's amazing. He said, I'm going to get it out right away. So he did. It's, uh, it's called a low-grade um, uh, transitional cell carcinoma. And uh, he said, the unfortunate thing is, uh, he said, um, uh, I'll take it out, but they tend to grow back. You can't, you can't hardly prevent them. So he took it out and, uh, and uh, gave me a treatment, and that was fine. And went, I was in a, a lot of pain for a while there. And then I went back in. And uh, for the checkup after surgery, and he said, oh, no, he said, you've had a reaction to the medication we gave you, and I can't even tell the condition of your bladder. So in about another four weeks, come back, and I'll take another look and see if you got any, any more tumors. So I got through that, went back, and, and he told Janice and I, he said, I think you may have between 16 and 18 new tumors growing. And we wow. saw them on the, on the TV screen. It was not a good sight. <laughs> and... Uh, so he scheduled surgery. That was amazing there. He, he discovered those, and uh, he, they had a, he said, we're going to schedule that as soon as possible. And within three days, I was in surgery. That was a Wednesday, and on Friday, they, cut, they operated. And it turned out there were 12 uh, new tumors growing. It wasn't 16 to 18, but it was a bunch. When you do something, you do it right, bro. <laughs> yeah, it's like a flower garden down there. Yeah, I know. Damn. I asked them maybe that stuff they put in there was fertilizer, you know. But you're still, <laughs> other than the reaction to the medicine, you're still feeling strong as an ox. Oh, yeah. No, didn't hurt nothing. I mean, a day after surgery, I'm back to normal. You know, it's amazing. And uh, so then um, I went in for a checkup later, and there were three more. And they took two. Two of those three were malignant. So I've had 15 tumors taken out. But, you know, the last one was March a year ago. Uh, and so my next appointment will be in March 18th. And, um, and I feel great again, you know, but they could be growing. But I'm not worried about it. The Lord gave me peace about that, you know. I said, Lord, you know, if I've got some unsaved loved ones I've been praying for for a long time. And, and uh, if more people would get saved by my, my going, I would rather go than, uh, than if... If more people would get saved by my staying, I'd rather stay. You know, mm-hmm. you know, we're all going to be there one day, and it's not that far away. You know, in the spectrum of eternity, even a hundred years is nothing. Yeah, we can't even comprehend eternity. It's not within our mindset. We can't. It's, it, it has no beginning, no ending. We can't comprehend it. Mm-hmm. It's a God thing, and uh, so it's really important that we that we uh, occupy our time here and do what we should do and have a relationship with the Lord. You know, I often tell people when I speak, I say, you know, I encourage you to take what's called the mirror test. The mirror test is instead of just shaving in the morning, gentlemen, or ladies, when you're putting your makeup on, look at your eyes, look at yourself in the mirror. And what you see right now is how you're going to be three years, five years, ten years from now, except you'll have aged. But you're basically going to be the same person your personality, your thoughts and things, except for three things. The people you meet, the places you go, and the books you read. Now, with the computer age, it's also any material you take in, not just books. Yes. But the people you meet, hang around good people. Hang around people that bring out the best in you. People that, uh, that you're, they bring out the better in you when you're with them, and you bring out the better in them. Hang around good people. Because that's one of the three things that influences who you are. And the places you go. Don't go to sleazy places. Don't go to places that you shouldn't. You know where you should go and where you shouldn't. And uh, So go to good places. And number three, uh, take in good material. 
it's sad that uh, the junk that's available now, and the internet is wonderful, but it has a dark side too. And you've got to avoid that. Mm-hmm. Uh, do wholesome, go, go to wholesome places, read wholesome books, wholesome things. Uh, and uh, that's my advice on that. That's good advice. We are what we eat, right? We are. Yeah. Garbage in is garbage out. Yeah. Yeah. Mentally, physically, spiritually, financially, we are what we eat. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you this question. And I think you will be fine with it, but I hope I don't offend you at all. Okay. We've talked with this already. All You're right. 76 years old. Right. You have an aneurysm that's, or a, a problem that could rupture at any time. Sure. Statistically, you know, you're where, um, you know, life statistically is close to very close. wrapping up yeah. for you. Like you said, you're in your final well, two minutes. We're either in a two-minute warning or a sudden death. I'm not sure which part. Which <laughs> exactly. part of, we're in a ball game. I don't know. We're so near the, the end. Exactly. All right. So this, no, I could die today. My sure. kids could die. There's Anybody no guarantee. Can, the listener, we could die today. We have to be prepared. It's but, appointed on the man wants to die. But I'm thankful. I truly mean it. I'm thankful that we can be friends. And I'm thankful mm-hmm. you're here today and we have this moment together. This recording, as long as I keep paying the bills on my credit card, it's going to stay on the internet. Is there anything you want to say to your wife, to your kids, to your family, to your foster kids, to the world, to our listeners? Is there anything, any closing thoughts that you want to leave with them? Yeah, a closing thought for me would be uh, make sure that you keep your priorities right. You know, uh, as a Christian, you need to stay in the Bible. You need to read the Bible. You need to pray. And you need to conduct your life that because in a way that would cause others to want what you've got. You know, you, you, we need to make sure, and I need to make sure, that I can run around uh, hollering at people, horrified when you hear cursing and things like that. But listen, we're in a world that is controlled basically by Satan. And they're, the salvation, the Christian, has an advantage. We know who wins in this battle we're in. We know Satan's going to lose in the long run, but we're in a battle here, and it's a spiritual battle. And those of us who have accepted Christ as our personal Savior already know where our eternal destiny is going to be. We should live our lives so that we can reach those that we care about, those are especially friends, family, loved ones, that we can reach them for Christ. Uh, somebody gave me a book several years ago. I was speaking in a, in a meeting in Texas, and a guy gave me a book. And uh, it's, it was uh, it's called uh, uh, Praying uh, Intercessory Prayer. Mm. And I read that book, and I got convicted about my prayer life. My prayer life was very shallow. And uh, he, he pointed out in that book how important it is that we pray f- consistently for those that we care about, that we're trying to win to Christ, and if, uh, that they will. Because a person can't get saved unless the blinders are removed from their eyes. The, the, Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, theologian, the Christian, wrote many books, and uh, he said that I was raised in a Christian family, he said, and I don't recall ever hearing the gospel presentation of how to get saved. He said, I know I did. I had to have. He said, I went to a Christian, uh, I went to church all the time. I had a Christian family. And he said, and yet when I accepted Christ, I could have sworn that was the first time I ever heard the gospel message. And that you hear other people give that same testimony. I went to a Baptist church as a little boy 
every Sunday. For, I had a row of pins hanging on my shirt that I was all proud of for perfect attendance. Uh, my mom and dad didn't go. They made us go, but I was all proud of that. But you know what? I don't recall ever hearing the gospel message till the day my dad came home and, and shared it with me, uh, and I accepted Christ. And, and I, I could tell you all the flannel graph stories and things, and I'm sure that probably some of those teachers ha- had to have mentioned the gospel story. But my eyes were blinded. My ears were blinded. Uh, I couldn't hear. The, unless the Holy Spirit opens a person's eyes, you cannot talk them into becoming a Christian, and you shouldn't try. We need to pray that people will be receptive to the gospel and that God will open their eyes and ears and that they'll see their need of Christ. Until they see that need, you can't browbeat them to win them. And yet our job here on earth, the only reason God leaves us here, heaven is our home. We're just passing through here. It's a little test. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be cognizant of that. And our lives should be a testimony that someone would look at and say, I want what that person has. And uh, then their heart is open and ready. And that's a result of prayer. We we, we uh, covet your prayers in our barn ministry, and uh, we pray for it. We have a great one coming up uh, next Thursday night, a week from tomorrow. And uh, we've been praying that the Lord will bring the right people, that they're ready to hear the gospel and receptive, and that our Christian friends will, will invite people to come to that. And uh, it can be life-changing. Absolutely. And it really is. Seeing it on pictures and hearing about it and experience it are so different. So if you can get a chance to get down to Pensacola, you have a thousand reasons to come to Pensacola, but check out the men's barn meeting. Uh, If you can give, if you're able, give and keep that funded, not so we can give money to friends, but so we can give money to people to hear the gospel and know God and not spend eternity in hell. Well, Jim, is there anything, you have an amazing and remarkable life, is there anything we missed today that you'd like to hit on before we part? I think we covered a lot of it. (laughs) It's been an honor to uh, be part of this. Thank Uh, you. No, I thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Um, Well, to our listeners out there, I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have any questions for Jim, we'll have a link to him in the show notes, how you can get in contact with him. If you have any questions for me, uh, if you can rate and review our podcast, we'd really appreciate it because the more reviews, the more people will listen. The more people listen, the more they'll hear the truth. The more they hear the truth, the more we'll help them grow. And it all is to help and to glorify God. So we love you. Thanks for being here today. Uh, God bless. And like this slogan says, train for life. Catch you later. This is Dave with the Remarkable People Podcast. We'll see you soon. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. Do. Repeat. For life.